So that's 1 John 3, starting at verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false spirits, false prophets, have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Let me add my uh, welcome uh, to you. And um, let's begin by praying together. Father, on a day such as today, we have many things to be thankful for. We do again thank you for the servicemen who have given their lives to uh, protect this land, for those who continue to do so in uh, arenas of conflict today. Thank you that in their sacrifice we see uh, a little echo of the heart of the living God who was willing to, uh, a father who was willing to send his son into the world as a sacrifice to save us for eternity. So as we dwell upon him, would we hear him rightly? Would his word, as we've expressed in our song, transform and change us? So we appreciate him more fully. We see him more clearly. We live for him this day and beyond, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, to be spiritual is a very good thing, apparently. Um, To be spiritual, 80% of the UK population would happily describe themselves as spiritual. That's popular. And um, with, with this in mind, I had my eyes open a little bit more uh, in the last week at uh, things around and posters on the tube. A couple of posters struck me. Um, one was for the London College of Spirituality. Well, if you want to be spiritual, where else would you go but the London College of Spirituality? And their uh, tagline is, where every individual realizes their innate inner power, their untapped abilities, and limitless potential. Doesn't sound fabulous. Did you not know you had those things? That within all of us resides innate power, untapped abilities, and limitless potential. I like that. I have limitless potential inside of me. That sounds very encouraging. If only someone, I could pay them enough to uh, release that. And uh, the London College of Spirituality promises me such a thing. I mean, why wouldn't you go for something such as that? 
Another poster I saw was for Spiritual Singles. It's a dating service, an online dating service. Uh, I think there are many of those, but the, the, uh, the anger of this one is we're for spiritual people. Given that 80% of the population thinks of themselves as spiritual, that's probably quite good marketing. But again, their tagline is uniting you with your spiritual soulmate and raising the collective consciousness of the nation. I have no idea what that means. But it's clearly popular. That's the spirit of our age. Spirituality. And of course it's true. Our modern culture is very happy for you to describe yourself as a spiritual person. As long as you don't take it too seriously. I mean, have your spirituality, but don't don't push it on anyone else. And certainly, please don't say that you're right and they're wrong. That would be very un-British, very rude to do such a thing. Now, we're very happy with the um, uh, famously quote of Aniram Bevan. This is my truth. Tell me yours. I've got my truth. What's your truth? This is my spirituality. It works for me. How about you? Have you found something that works for you? That's very much a very popular culture. Uh, and um, came up again in the papers this week. So uh, particularly on Thursday, Friday, the new Archbishop of Canterbury um, uh, announced. Uh, but uh, when they refer back to Rome Williams, every time I read the name Rome Williams, he was described as a deeply spiritual man. That's the sort of adjective that gets landed upon him. Now, I'm not saying that may or may not be true. But I think what they mean by that is just, I don't know, thoughtful becomes another adjective. He's a spiritual man, a thoughtful man, a contemplative man, that sort of thing. That's nice. But John, and we're really looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 today, John would ask a slightly different question. John wants to know, is it true? Now that's not a very popular question. But when it comes to spiritual matters, chapter 4 and verse 1, he'll put it this way. Dear friends... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are genuine spiritual experiences, and there are false ones. There are genuine spiritually men and women. There are false ones. They may not be aware of it. They may be self-deluded. But John would encourage here, don't be naive. Don't be foolish. Lots of people in our culture will say, I'm spiritual. I've had a spiritual experience. Is it a true one, says John? One mark of genuine spiritual maturity is disbelieving the untrue. Of course, Christian maturity, you want to believe what is true, but also a mark of maturity is you, you, there's discernment there, and you will disbelieve the untrue. You see, it's the, it's the only imperative, really, in the text, chapter 4, verse 1. Do not believe everything. Don't be believe everything. Don't, don't be naive. Don't be gullible. Lots of people are spiritual. Not all true. Not all true experiences. Not all true teachers. Some come and tell you things that are untrue, false. Don't be naive. 
Now, this whole letter, if you're joining us, this whole letter of 1 John is written to Christians really in need of assurance. There are some people who have left their church and are ringing them up, ringing up their friends who are still at the church and saying, why are you still there? We've moved on. We're, we have higher experiences. We have deeper knowledge. We're superior. Don't stay there. It's all out of dated. Move on. Move on with us. We have direct access to God. Come, join us. You're missing out. To which John writes this letter back to his friends in the church and says, No, no, don't believe that. You're genuine believers. You are saved. God is using you. What you believe is the truth. Don't be naive. You can know with confidence you're genuine believers. So say no to the new kid on the block. Say no to the latest fad. Say no to their idolatrous religion. Just keep as you are. You're genuine believers. Let me just have a a brief five-minute tangent on this issue of assurance, because struck me, John is, throughout this letter, he's wanting to assure his Christian believers. Now, um, I, this is a simplification, but uh, run with it if you will. I think probably you'd say throughout, uh, throughout Christian history, Christians have generally referred to three directions you can look for ways of, for assurance. Three directions to look for assurance. The first, and most, obvi- uh, most significant, the first would be to look up. Look up, see Jesus Christ sat down, reigning in heaven, having finished his work of dying as a substitute for your sins. Look up. Look up. That's the first place you look for assurance. Most important. Second, and put it this way, look around at how you live your life. And we looked at this last week in detail. That's why we had reread from chapter 318. We read that last time. Look around at how you live your life. Are you loving other people? Is that obvious? Can you look back upon your life and think, no, how I relate to other people is different. Look around at your life. And the third would be look within. Look within at the witness of the Spirit. Look, and there he says in chapter 3, verse 24, this is how we know that God lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. So broadly speaking, there are three ways that Christians think of assurance. You look up to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look around. How are you living your life? Are you changing over time? Look within to the internal witness of the Spirit. Now, those are not equally significant. So Christians get confused if you get the order of them in the wrong way. So the first is by far and away the most significant. It's objective. The work of Jesus Christ you can look back to in history It's always true. Always true. So if you're struggling for assurance, look up upon the work of Jesus Christ. Look and see him sat down in God's right hand in heaven. And that's, um, John has stressed that, just look back briefly, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you're struggling in the Christian faith, look up. Know that one speaks in your defense, Jesus, who's died for you. So he said that that's look up for assurance. But then, as I said last time, we looked at chapter 3 and verse 18. 
chapter 3, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with words, sorry, with actions and in truth. This is how we know we belong to the truth. Do you practically love other Christian brothers and sisters? It's a way of being confident of your faith. And then chapter 3, verse 24 is the third. This is how we know that God lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. So three ways John would talk about, and they're the classic ways Christians have spoken of in history, of having assurance that you're a believer. But don't get them confused. The first, the finished work of Christ, objective. Look back at it. The other's a little harder to assess. This third, the hardest one to assess, I guess. What is a true experience of the Spirit? Lots of people would claim it. How do you assess? Here he gives two little tests. Just two. Two little tests here. The truly spiritual acknowledge of flesh and blood Jesus, verses 2 and 3. And then the truly spiritual listen to the apostles' teaching, verses 4 to 6. Two little tests. Let's go through them. First then, how do you know if it's a true spiritual experience? Verses 2 and 3. Where the truly spiritual ones acknowledge flesh and blood Jesus. He puts it very simply. Verse 2. This, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. If you're in any doubt. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Okay. Now, a little brief little bit of context. John is writing at a time when uh, some uh, popular teachers are teaching something like this. Jesus Christ was just a man, nothing more. When he was baptized, God's spirit came upon him. And he lived that way for three years. And then just before he died, the spirit left him. And he died just a man. So God came briefly for three years and then disappeared. And the rest of the time, Jesus is just a man. It's a sort of Gnosticism, is the sort of posh name for it. But that teaching was quite popular at the time. And against that, John is saying, "Mm -mm -mm. don't believe anyone who tells you that nonsense. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. And will be for eternity. When you meet Jesus Christ in heaven, he'll have flesh and blood. Don't believe anyone who teaches you otherwise. So he's very strong. If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you you cannot be a Christian, really. That's not verse 3. That's not the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist to teach something different to that. Now, what do you make of that today? I don't think amongst those who call themselves Christians today, that's much of a debate. So the debate about Jesus being fully man, fully God, God in flesh, that was really settled in the early church. I mean, you get one or two who deny that today, but not many. Not many. I guess uh, much more common today would not be the identity of Jesus, but his death would be up for debate. What did his death achieve? And John is equally concerned with that in his letter. I think the two are very, very closely related. So if you just look down chapter 4, verse 10, he'll put it very clearly and starkly. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to do what? sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what, why Jesus died, as a substitute. 
he took punishment that you and I deserve so that we may know the blessings that he deserved. It ties them all very closely together, just over the page, chapter 5, verse 6. This sort of fleshly language. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. So you see there a mark of the true Spirit is teaching that Jesus came by water and blood. I think in John's language that's a reference to his death upon the cross, where water and blood flows from his side. So John is equally concerned. The truly spiritual would be teaching not only that Jesus is God and man, but that he died as a substitute for sin. Now that is something that people disagree on. And so John would say to us very clearly this morning, if someone comes to you and claims that they're spiritual, they're a spiritual teacher, but would deny that the death of Jesus Christ was a substitute for sin, do not listen to them. That is Antichrist speaking. Very strong language, isn't it? We don't like that language. It's very strong. I think I mentioned in the evening last uh, last month, I was at a conference, a conference of Anglican clergy, 500 Anglican clergy from the diocese, all gathered for a conference on um, growing churches in the city. And two very different speakers happened to be there, uh, theologically very different. Um, one of them was a, a minister from New York, Tim Keller. And um, the main thing he really wanted to say to all these clergy gathered was, nothing changes people's lives than teaching them. Nothing changes people's lives like teaching them that. Jesus Christ died as their substitute. And he gave <laughs> about 10 minutes worth of illustrations of one man substituting their life for another to really, ham the, uh, really hammer the point home. Now, for us, in our sort of setting, for us, if you've been here at Christchurch for all, that would be a very familiar concept, I hope. He sacrificed himself for us. There was a swap. But in that room, there was fury. And as I walked out and spoke to one or two that, that I know who are Anglican ministers in the diocese, spitting with anger. Disgraceful. How could he say that? How was that man permitted to speak here for an hour? Disgraceful. Outrageous. I will be complaining in the fiercest possible terms. Very striking, I thought. To which I think John would say, if you unhappy with Jesus Christ coming as a man and God dying in the man Jesus Christ as a substitute for your sin. If you don't believe that's true, there's nothing spiritually true about you. It's one mark. One mark. The truly spiritual would acknowledge a flesh and blood, Jesus, says John. And uh, perhaps even more simply, uh, it's the second little uh, test. The truly spiritual... Well, they'll listen to the apostles' teaching. The truly spiritual will listen to the teaching of the first apostles. Actually, before you get the test, you get verse 4, which is just another little brief word of assurance that John interjects at this point. Verse 4, uh, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. That is, the false prophets who've gone into the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
if you've been here, you know John likes to use this word, world, in two senses. There's just creation, which is a good thing. Enjoy creation. Enjoy beautiful landscapes. Enjoy wonderful food. Enjoy the arts. Enjoy the good things of creation. It's good. But the second sense John uses the world is creation minus God. So a worldview that says the material, all you can see is all there is. There is no God. Or you just live for this world. That's worldly thinking. And that's that sense that um, John is using it here. So he's saying, verse 4, My dear children, my Christian friends, you're from God. You've overcome the false teachers. You won't believe in them. I know you won't believe in them. Because God is at work in you by his Spirit. And that Spirit working within you will keep you. He will maintain you secure in the faith. And you won't listen to the false teachers. You can have confidence in that. Your security rests upon God's Spirit at work in you. Perhaps a bit like this. Uh, a little while ago, I was um, uh, uh, walking through the park and uh, watched a fairly common scene. Walked past this sort of adventure playground bit of the park. And a group of children were, were sort of fighting one another to have a go on the zip slide. Not a big zip slide, zip wire. Um, the sort of thing, you know, about three foot off the ground, maybe four foot off the ground, where children jump on and sit on a little plate and go along. I mean, fun. Fun. Never had them in my day. Anyway, fun. Fun little thing. And all the children, I don't know, they're all about seven to twelve having a go on this thing. And uh, one younger lad sort of nervously mounted the steps to this thing. Guestimate. He was about five. Mounted the steps to this thing. And uh, the, the wire came to him and the plate and he held it and just sort of looked very nervous indeed. You know, everyone else was a bit older than him and he wasn't too sure. I mean, it was a little bit of a drop if he fell off. So all the other children started getting restless. Come on, get on with it. Oh, you're pathetic. Get off. Let us have a go. And obviously that... Uh, the lips started going. I thought, oh, poor kid. Um, no problem. All of a sudden flying in from the distance, his father, I presume. Anyway, this, this man came running up, running up, Brian, no problem, you can do it, you can do it. Helped his son get on the plate, and then as Brian pushed off, dad was there, desperately holding onto this plate, you know, uh, running along the length of this zip wire, making sure that Brian didn't fall off. All was well, lovely, beautiful. Now, the boy was safe. Because dad was his security, making sure he didn't fall off. And John is saying something like that. My dear children, you're safe. I know you won't fall away from what is true. Because God's spirit is at work in you, holding on to you. He'll hold you in place. You're safe. Oh look, you, you will test the spirits, won't you? Don't be naive. There is something you need to do. You are involved in this process, but ultimately... Your security doesn't rest upon you. It's God at work in you. The test itself, well, the test itself is really verses 5 and 6. Here's the second test of what is true. Verse 5. They, the false prophets he's spoken about, they, they're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. By contrast, we... We, the apostles, I think he means, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not 
listen to us. Very striking verse 5. The false prophets are from the world, speak from the viewpoint of the world, the world listens to them. And again, there'll be plenty of people happy to set themselves up as religious teachers who will just tell the world what they want to hear. And unsurprisingly, the secular world will be very happy to hear its own ideas bounce back, its own ideas dressed up in a mitre and a gown and just repeated to them. I mean, it's fine, isn't it? It's very flattering. Very flattering. You suggest something to your spouse. You suggest an idea to your boss. I think we should. We should invest in X. The next day they come back to you. I think we should invest in X. Well, that's a very good idea. Of course. You just have your own ideas repeated back to you. Be very popular. It's always been that way. Always been some Christian leaders who will just recycle the ideas of the culture, give them a sort of spiritual veneer, and then present them back. And certainly many in the media and the popular culture are so very good. So I don't know, I was reading um, the newspapers on Friday, and uh, dear Justin Welby, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, everyone at the moment loves him. You must, we must pray for this man, because golly, how long can that last? That can't last very long, can it? By any stretch of the imagination. But uh, certainly the Times newspaper commenting upon the new Archbishop of Canterbury. He was their leader observation. The Church of England, in our opinion, needs to accommodate itself, even at the price of internal dispute, to the principle of non-discrimination on the grounds of sexuality. There we go, that's our opinion, says the Times. If the church just says, do what you want sexually, we'll say, very good, you're a good church, we like you. Oh, if you don't accommodate, well, we won't like you at all. Or as uh, one of the commentators put inside the paper, whatever prophetic stand the new archbishop takes, the church in the end will adapt to secular ethics and modern mores. It has to do so. Just the assumption there. Of course, I mean, the church has got to just run with the times. Whatever the culture says, the church has got to catch up because otherwise, well, we won't like the church very much. I mean, the assumption there that they're spoken is the church will die unless it just apes the culture around it. And John says, well, you just need to know, verse 5. That's always the case. There'll always be false prophets who are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world will say, oh, we like you. You're a very good, you're a very good Christian minister because you tell us everything we agree with. We like that very much indeed. The, the assumption there, I guess, is that the truth is malleable. Whatever the truth is in 2012, that's what the church must teach. And whatever the truth is in 2112, that's what the church must teach. Just whatever the culture says. Of course, the problem with that is, or the irony from that is, of that is, just 60 years, two generations, technically speaking. 60 years ago, uh, our great-grandparents, sorry, our grandparents, 60 years ago, in uh, 1952, most people, would look back and say, oh, it's a bit embarrassing some of the things they believed, isn't it, to be honest? I mean, what they believed sexually, very embarrassing. 
their disregard for the environment is terrible. Terrible, terrible. But of course, in 60 years' time, in, um, uh, in two generations, they'll look back upon us and say, what they believed, very embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Their attitudes, terrible in that sense. If, if the truth is just what the culture teaches, oh, it'll change rapidly over time. And John says, don't, don't believe that. You don't want teachers who just chase the culture. There is a timeless truth revealed by God that is always true. But a false spirituality will confuse the spirit of age with the spirit of Christ and say they're the same thing. Whatever the newspapers say is true, the church must say is true. Whatever the BBC says is true, the church must say is true. John says there'll always be a difference at some points. You don't want teachers, you just chase the culture. By contrast, verse 6, we, he means the apostles, we the apostles are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. I mean, it's a familiar truth in this letter all the way back in chapter 1. He began making this point that... um, The original apostles had touched, seen, heard Jesus Christ. They'd met him. They'd witnessed with their eyes what he did and what he said in a unique way. Now, of course, the objection comes at this. Okay, what John says in here, uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 6, we're from God, whoever knows God listens to us. Every cult leader says that, don't they? Everyone who sets themselves up, it doesn't matter where it is, in uh, in North Korea, in Waco, Texas, it doesn't matter who, every cult leader says, God has spoken to me, you should listen to me. If you listen to me, you're listening to God. The difference is this. John is not talking about an inner experience, a voice in his head, because that is impossible to assess if that's true or not. You know, if uh, you go to uh, work or meet up with a friend tomorrow and they say, oh, I had an interesting night last night. Why was that? Well, God met me last night in a dream. Did he really? Did he really? Have you had a lot of sleep recently? No. Okay, good. But um, what if someone turns up and says, God met me in a dream last night and he told me, this is the true religion. You need to wear shoes upon your hands and eat only uh, food manufactured in Northern Ireland or whatever the, uh, the uh, comments are. Now, how do you assess if that's true? God met me in my head. There's no way of assessing that. John is saying something very, very different. He's saying, let me tell you about events that took place in history that are verifiable historically, or falsifiable, but there's objective historical observations here. Many of us saw this man, Jesus Christ, saw his death, saw his resurrection, it's very, very different. But here in this little section, verses four, uh, verses 5 and 6, John says, look, here's a dividing line between true and false Christianity. Here's a dividing line between a true spiritual experience and a false one, if you want to put it in those ways. It's quite a simple one. False Christianity does not submit to the teaching of the apostles in the scripture. A true Christianity does. 
That's his conclusion verse, at the end of verse 6. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. What is true listens to us. True Christianity submits to the teaching of the apostles in Scripture. That's what it does. So you have it, two little tests. I mean, they're not complicated, really. I don't think. What do you do if someone says, I'm a spiritual person? Or someone says, look, look at him. He's deeply spiritual. Very impressive spiritual person. How do you know? Well, there are a number of ways. But here John just says, here are two. They'll acknowledge a flesh and blood Jesus, that God became man and died upon a cross to pay for your sins. The spiritual person will do that. And the spiritual person will listen to the apostles' teaching in the scriptures. Won't just drift with the culture and chase the culture and say, oh, that's true, is it? But they'll say, God has spoken once for all. And we can trust the eyewitness accounts of those first apostles. Two two tests. The true experience of the Spirit, two little ways you can know. Last comment, of course, this is not an idle little test. It matters for John, because this determines where you spend eternity. It matters because it's not an academic exercise. But verse 4, this is how you become a child of the living God. Of course, some of us, we instinctively, this whole letter of 1 John, but this sort of passage in particular, the divisiveness of it, true, false, we don't like it. But John is, of course, saying, my dear children, chapter 4, verse 4, don't be naive. It's the sort of comment that every parent makes to their child when they're young. Son, daughter, don't be naive. Not every man you meet in the park is a nice man. Some will harm you. Don't listen to every stranger you meet. Some are not nice. Some, of course, they're neither here nor there. They may be pleasant. But only one of us is your dad, and only one of us is your mum. You do know us, don't you? Every parent will issue that sort of warning. And every child is delighted to run into the parent's arms. And so John here is saying, my dear children, you're from God. Don't trust other people. Because ultimately, God is your Father, and there's only one Father who speaks the truth. There's only one Father who cares enough to send his only child into the world to die for you. There's only one Father who can keep you secure. Don't be naive. Others will come. They'll offer you sweeties. They'll offer you higher experiences. But trust the Father who loves you. Trust him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, you are kind to us. You're good to us. You give us the warnings we need. We don't like being warned. Some of us will hear this little section of chapter 4 as a bit of a shout, really. Don't listen to the false teachers, only listen to the apostles. We don't like being shouted at. But Father, thank you that you, you know us well. It is for our good. And sometimes we need to be warned that not everyone wants our good spiritually. Not everyone who claims to be good is, is so spiritually. Would we be discerning, test the spirits, and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.